The humanitarian crisis is deepening for more than two million people trapped inside Gaza. Israel's defense force says efforts will be made to provide Gaza access to fuel, but would not allow it to reach Hamas. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, October 24th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Qatar plays a role of mediator in the Middle East. They've successfully worked on deals that relate to Yemen in 2007, Lebanon in 2008, Sudan in 2011. And now Qatar is helping negotiate the release of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza. Also ahead, some success stories from a global test of a four-day work week. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Israel-Hamas war is about to stretch into a 19th day. It's late at night in the region where civilians are forced to take cover from exchange of heavy weapons fire between Israel and the Palestinian militant group. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Israeli helicopters and special forces moved to confront Hamas militants who landed on the beach south of the Israeli city of Ashkelon. The clashes along the coast of the Gaza Strip mark Hamas's latest effort to attack Israel, an assault that began with the killing of more than 1,400 people on October 7th. World leaders have been trying to find a way to calm the situation. French President Emmanuel Macron arrived Tuesday and proposed that an anti-ISIS coalition be reformed to combat Hamas. He gave no details on how the U.S.-led coalition that includes dozens of countries but not Israel would get involved in the fighting. Macron warned of the danger of the conflict spreading. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Two elderly women are free, but more than 200 people are still being held hostage in Gaza. Under ongoing Israeli strikes, hospitals in the territory are overwhelmed with trauma cases. For a third straight day, humanitarian aid was delivered from Egypt, 57 trucks in total so far. Former President Donald Trump returned to court in New York City for a civil fraud trial where his former attorney and fixer Michael Cohen was set to testify against him. This is not about Donald Trump versus Michael Cohen or Michael Cohen versus Donald Trump. This is about accountability, plain and simple, and we leave it up to Judge Angoron in order to make all the determinations on that. Cohen speaking outside the courtroom before Trump's trial reconvened. House Republicans have nominated Minnesota Congressman Tom Emmer to become the next Speaker of the House. NPR's Windsor Johnson tells us, though, it is unclear whether the majority whip will be able to lock down the votes he needs to win the gavel on the full House floor. Congressman Emmer is facing a splintered party and a super-thin majority in the House as he seeks to win the Speakership. Justin Crow, a political science professor at Williams College, says if Emmer can't bridge those bitterly divided factions, Republicans will be back at square one one again. It is very much on the on the same merry-go-round or, or maybe the same seesaw, if, if that's the better analogy. And it's not clear that it's that it's ready to break. It may be that we're that we're destined to do this again and look for something of a unicorn, which is someone who can unify the so-called five families of the Republican Party. The House has been without a speaker for three weeks, putting on hold all legislative business. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The UAW says 5,000 workers walked off their jobs at GM's Arlington Assembly Plant in Arlington, Texas, 
one of the automaker's largest plants. The plant helps produce some of GM's most profitable models. Tens of thousands of people are on strike. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's general manager wants repair work on narrow tracks along the Green Line extension to start as soon as possible. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez has more. General Manager Phil Eng says he's aiming to have the entire length of track on the Green Line extension, or GLX, brought up to industry standard within a few weeks. Eng told MBTA board members he is reviewing a proposal by the contractors who worked on the expansion project, and overnight repairs could start as soon as November 1st. And that would be 9 p.m. at night to 5 a.m. in the morning, potentially 10 to 14 nights of work. Ang says the T will release a repair schedule once it is finalized. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Massachusetts is slated to get more than $130 million from the federal government to help low-income residents heat their homes this winter. Homeowners and renters are eligible for the aid if they earn 60% or less of the state's median income. The median income is just over $45,000 a year for a single household, just over $87,000 a year for a family of four. Today, President Biden is honoring two Brandeis faculty members with the National Medal of Science. Eve Martyr and Gregory Petsko received their awards at the White House. Martyr was recognized for her research on neural circuits and her advocacy of basic science. Petsko was honored for research on neurodegenerative conditions such as ALS, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. The Old North Church in Boston marked a milestone this afternoon. The church's organ was tuned for the 100th time. The organ is more than 250 years old and needs the tune-ups. The Old North Church's Emily Spence says the instrument was built specifically for this spot. It was built in 1759 by Thomas Johnston. So it just sounds really incredible in this space. Old North has wonderful acoustics, but the organ, when you hear it being played, it really fills the space in such a unique and powerful way. The Old North Church is the oldest surviving church building in Boston. It's the one if by land, two if by sea church. This marks the 300th anniversary of the church this year. In the forecast, pretty glorious out there now. Clear skies tonight, about 50 degrees. Then for tomorrow, a bit of springtime. Temperatures inching up to the low 70s, increasing clouds through the day tomorrow. And then for Thursday, sunshine with highs in the mid-70s. 62 degrees now in Boston at 407. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For a couple of weeks now, Israeli leaders have been saying they could start a ground offensive in Gaza at any moment. Troops and tanks line the border. There have been raids into Gaza to look for hostages or to kill militants. But the invasion is still pending, and it seems the U.S. has a lot of questions about it, maybe wants to slow it down. We're joined now by NPR's Tom Bowman, who covers the Pentagon, and Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv to talk about what could be going on behind the scenes between these two allies. Welcome to you both. Good to be here. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey there. Okay, so Tom, you kick us off. Again, we don't know when, we don't know exactly what is coming, but all indications point to Israeli forces about to roll into Gaza. When... U.S. military officials look at that. What do they see? Well, a lot of concerns. There's a concern that this could spread throughout the region should Israel invade. 
uh, with the Iranian-backed militants in Lebanon. Hezbollah may may fire its vast amount of missiles into Israel. This concern that Israel may not have thought through the implications of a massive ground invasion of Gaza. So you have top officials asking, what are your goals? Uh, what about civilians and keeping them safe in Gaza? And also telling the Israelis that this will be tough and brutal. Worse, Mary Louise, in the fight to defeat the Islamic State in the Iraqi city of Mosul, you remember, back in sure. 2016. Yeah. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said as much on ABC Sunday. Let's listen. This may be a bit more difficult because of the underground network of tunnels that Hamas has constructed over time and the fact that they've had a long time to prepare for a fight. So I think you'll see a fight that's characterized by a lot of IEDs, a lot of booby traps, and just uh, really grinding activity going forward. And, of course, a bigger concern is Iran itself getting involved somehow. That's why you see the American aircraft carriers, the attack aircraft, more munitions, and American advisors heading to the region. And by the way, Mary Louise, I'm told this is all part of a long-standing U.S. plan to defend Israel. It's been on the shelf for some time. It's not just kind of a haphazard movement of armaments and troops. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of President Biden's visit to Israel last week when he said, yes, we get it. You are right, Israel, to be enraged by the Hamas attack. Children were among the more than 1,400 people killed. But Biden also said, don't be consumed by rage. Learn from the mistakes that the U.S. made after 9-11. What exactly? was Biden warning there? Well, the biggest mistakes for the U.S. to telling Israel is the U.S. invaded two countries, Afghanistan and Iraq, overthrowing their governments and thinking things will be better, all fueled by fear about more terrorist attacks or suspected weapons of mass destruction. And in both cases, you had guerrilla warfare that lasted for two decades and continuing, of course, to today. Some of that could be true here. Okay, you destroy Hamas. Who governs in Gaza? And are you creating more militants by your tactics? Daniel, jump in here from Tel Aviv. You just heard uh, Tom Bowman say U.S. officials are questioning what 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 are Israel's goals here? What are they? Yeah, I mean, Israel has uh, been a lot more clear just in the last couple of days about what its stated goals are, and the, and the goals are to eradicate Hamas's military capability and its ability to govern the Gaza Strip. So essentially, Israel is calling for regime change in Gaza. Um, Israel and its leaders keep saying the next phase of the war is coming. Uh, what is that phase is the question. Uh, now, Israel has created this condition, Mary Louise, where basically they've said— um, Israel needs to remove Hamas at all costs, and this is a very dramatic goal, and now Israel's trying to figure out how to make that work. There are tens of thousands of Hamas militants in Gaza. What happens with them? I mean, there are a lot of questions. Tom posed some of them. Another one is, is the Palestinian Authority, the internationally recognized uh, leadership of the Palestinians, are they able to take over Gaza if Hamas is, is uh, toppled. They, the, the Palestinian Authority barely functions today. They don't want to be seen as coming in on the backs of Israeli tanks. And of course, Israel says it doesn't want to reoccupy Gaza long term. They don't want to be responsible for the lives of two million Palestinians there. And, and meanwhile, on the hostages, how are people there in Israel thinking about uh, the hostages that Hamas is holding as Israel is bombarding Gaza? And, and it sounds like planning a ground attack. 
Oh, they're thinking about it a lot. I mean, Israel has released, I mean, Hamas has released four hostages just in the last few days, and this really does change Israel's calculus. It does delay a ground invasion. Today, Israel dropped leaflets in Gaza using warplanes, basically calling on Gazans to to call this number if you know of a hostage. So this really does, um, really focuses the, the next days of the war. And it's also important to note there are 10 missing Americans. Some of them been, have been kidnapped by Hamas. And beyond that, you have some 400 to 600 Americans trapped in Gaza. They can't get out, and there isn't enough food and water going in. And also, I should just say that Egypt actually is concerned about letting people out of Gaza. They don't want to see millions of Palestinians coming into their country. Uh, Tom, quickly, just practical military considerations for the U.S. if this thing does end up getting bigger? Well, of course, uh, protecting U.S. troops against Iranian-backed militias is key. And we've already seen some attacks repelled against U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. So that's why the added missile defense systems are being sent to the region. Uh, Again, Hezbollah getting involved would be even more troubling, really, for Israel. Hezbollah, get this, has some 150,000 rockets and missiles that could overwhelm Israeli defenses. Uh, Daniel, last word to you. Do you get a sense that Israel is listening to the Biden administration's advice? I do. Israel is listening to the U.S., but, you know, Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is known to take his time on on big military decisions. And Israel has been saying this is its final war with Gaza because Hamas will be gone after this war. But, you know, the question is, how? How do you get rid of Hamas? NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv and Tom Bowman in the studio with me. He covers the Pentagon. Thanks, you too. You're welcome. Thank you. Are you dreaming of a four-day work week for five days pay? Well, one small manufacturing company outside of Cleveland has turned this idea into a reality. NPR's Andrea Shu visited to see how they are making it work. In a spacious, airy workshop, Bill Kowalsik is trimming down a small piece of wood to just the right size and shape. Shave a little bit more off of that. He works in the finishing department at Advanced RV, a company that makes custom RVs. These aren't your run-of-the-mill motorhomes. These are Mercedes cargo vans, transformed into tiny luxury homes, with every detail chosen by the customer. Kowalsik's role is putting in the wall panels, the lighting, the final touches. We don't want to see any screws. We don't want to see any wires. Just want it to be all smooth, fluid, and as beautiful as possible. Last year, when he first got word that his company was trying out a four-day work week, he had a lot of questions. I mean, all of us were a little nervous, like, are we going to be able to get our work done? Are we going to do okay? Is this going to hurt us? But, uh, gosh, it's been great. Advanced RV is one of more than 200 companies that have taken part in a global four-day workweek trial and one of only a handful of manufacturers. For six months, the businesses agree to reduce working hours while maintaining the same pay. The goal is not to do less with less, but to maintain 100% productivity by bringing more energy and efficiency to the workplace while lessening fatigue and burnout. I had read about the four-day week probably two years ago. Mike Noondorfer is the CEO of Advanced RV. He founded the company in 2012 after leading other businesses for decades. This has never been a 24-7 kind of shop. Noondorfer has always kept his 50 or so employees to 40 hours a week, which means it takes them a really long time to get their product to their customers, two full years. We could probably make more money and figure it out if we did overtime, but we never do. In fact, in April of last year, he decided to try the opposite 
moving everyone to 32 hours a week without any cut in pay. Think about it. What more impact could a person have on a number of people that work for them than giving them 50 holiday days a year, a three-day weekend every weekend? It just seemed like the most significant thing I could do as a business owner and manager. The funny thing is, when he first brought it up, there were a lot of skeptics, including Trisha Eller, who's in charge of customer relations and has been with the company for almost a decade. I raised my hand and I said, I don't think we should do this. This is not going to work. We need to all be here five days a week. This is how business is run. In the beginning, she was assigned Mondays off, but... I worked my Mondays from home. You know, I took a little time to myself, but not much. And then as time went on... I thought, what am I doing? She had to learn to delegate, to trust that others on her team could handle customer queries. Now, she says, she'll still check email on her days off. I just can't let go. But she also gets to spend more time with her mom, who's retired. Over in the shop, Bill Kowalsik says the three guys on his team got hyper-focused on what they could cut out without cutting corners. We started looking into making more templates, more little jigs and boxes to help us with things that are repetitive. They also got more mindful about who can do what task the best and fastest. Well, Zach's a little better at this, so he's going to do that. I'm a little better at this. I'm going to do that, you know. He says each little change might only save six or seven minutes, but... If you save six or seven minutes on six or seven things, you're really starting to push the envelope a little bit and, and get a little bit more done. Even still, his boss, Mike Noondorfer, says when the company went to a four-day week, they did see a dip in output. You lose productivity, and when you lose productivity, you lose some volume and you lose profit. And a year and a half into this experiment, he says they're still not as productive as they were when everyone worked five days a week. But they're 90-some percent of the way there. And I think that at some point, some of the improvements will actually take us beyond what we were able to do in 40 hours. His employees, safe to say, are converts. I ask a group of them gathered for lunch if they can imagine going back to working 40 hours a week. Not in your life. No. <laughs> and neither can others. Of 41 North American companies that tried the four-day work week last year, no one said they're giving it up. Andrea Shu, NPR News, Willoughby, Ohio. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, there are renewed concerns about pilots' mental fitness after an off-duty commercial pilot tried to switch off the engines of a jet. We'll find out why aviators have resisted seeking help for their mental health coming up on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Stocks were upward bound today. The Dow rose more than six cents of a percent. S&P gained nearly three quarters of a percent, and the Nasdaq picked up nearly a full percent. Procter & Gamble is moving its Gillette manufacturing facility out of South Boston after more than a century. The company moved its blade-making operation to a 150-acre campus that already owns in Andover. About 750 corporate, engineering, and research and development jobs will remain in Southie. The forecast is coming up.
WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And the Umbrella Art Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical, now through November 5th. More at TheUmbrellaArts.org. A beauty of a day today. Skies should stay clear tonight, about 50 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, not bad. Both sunshine and clouds should be spring-like, though, with temperatures making it all the way to the low 70s. Thursday should be sunnier and even milder, maybe hitting the mid-70s. 62 now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. One half of the World Series matchup was decided last night. Grounded a second. Two years removed from losing 100. The Rangers have won the pennant. That was Fox with the call in Game 7. The reigning champion Houston Astros were defeated by the Texas Rangers, and the Rangers are now headed to the World Series. The eyes of baseball fans will all be on Philadelphia tonight for Game 7 between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Arizona Diamondbacks. We're joined now by Chelsea Janes, a national baseball reporter for The Washington Post. Chelsea, welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right. For folks who missed last night's game in Texas, can you just give us a quick recap of what happened and the American League series? You know, the Rangers and the Houston Astros played a really exciting series that ended last night with the Rangers winning a less exciting game um, by quite a lot to secure their trip to the World Series. That's a big deal because the Rangers in particular were not very good, even just two, maybe even one year ago. So for them to have made this journey in one year and leap to the World Series is a, a very big deal. I want to talk about the Rangers for a second, though, because I was watching them in the postseason and they've looked incredible. They're very good. They're a very good team that spent a lot of money the last two off seasons to really build back up a team that wasn't very good. And it's always this debate in baseball, does, does spending money actually work? And how how is that as a building mechanism? Well, for the Texas Rangers, it was very effective. They added a lot of pitchers, including veteran Max Scherzer, who cost them a lot to get at this year's trade deadline. So they've got a lot of players on that team that haven't been there all along but have come together very quickly and, you know, made the most of the talent they've put there. So as we were mentioning, tonight is the final game of the National League Championship Series, and either the Phillies or the Diamondbacks will be facing the Rangers in the World Series. And I don't know, it seems to me like Bryce Harper is really leading the charge to get the Phillies back to the series. What do you think? Absolutely. Bryce Harper has really found a home in Philadelphia and become just a masterful playoff performer. He's been really good for them. And, you know, I expect him to be here in game seven. The Phillies have a lot of players, you know, with that kind of talent uh, that, that Bryce Harper has. They are loaded and they are playing a team in the Diamondbacks that I think have a lot fewer familiar names, a lot fewer stars, but have somehow kind of just kept hanging on to get to this point. No matter who wins tonight, it will be the first World Series 
place in seven years without the Los Angeles Dodgers or the Houston Astros making an appearance. So as we gear up for the first game of the World Series on Friday, what are you hoping to see in the series? What are you watching for? You know, I think it's a, a fascinating series in many ways. One of them is is Texas manager Bruce Bochy. He stepped away from the game for a long time after having a ton of success with the San Francisco Giants, came back and seemingly has not missed a beat. He's led the Rangers straight to the World Series. He's a really steady presence, someone that a lot of people on that team look up to. And the Rangers have a lot of star power. They've got a lot of talented players on whom they've spent a lot of money, and they're banking on those players to make the difference. And the Phillies are very similar. For them, if they get rolling, it's a tough challenge challenge for anyone. So, you know, I think it's going to be a, a slugfest, a ton of star power, a lot of money spent, just a really good World Series matchup if the Phillies get there and kind of a, a really wild card one if it's the Diamondbacks because they're just a team that no one expected to be there and just a very unfamiliar group to most people who follow baseball casually. Chelsea Janes of The Washington Post, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. California has more people who are homeless than any other state. To help tackle the issue, a program in Los Angeles acts like a real estate agency for the unhoused. NPR's Jennifer Ludden explains. I'm in the car with Dan Valdez, who's going to check out a new apartment in his portfolio. I'm really excited. Uh, this was just hard work from our housing team. Valdez is with the nonprofit Brilliant Corners, which partners with L.A. County's Department of Health Services. Their mission is to have a stock of ready apartments so as soon as clients get their vouchers and documents in order, they can move right in. Oftentimes, our housing team will go out and, and do that shoe leather engagement. That means to find these places, Valdez's team of 12 makes cold calls, knocks on doors, and scouts for properties. Then they reach out to convince landlords, big and small, to sign on. It's full-time work, and if they didn't do it, it'd be left to overburden homelessness case managers. Valdez parks at a modest white apartment building near downtown. He targets areas clients want to live and the sizes they need, and clients can choose from up to three units. Inside, it's cozy, a main room with a kitchen, small bedroom, and bath. Very nice remodeled unit, as you can tell, and it smells like new, right? <laughs> and here's the thing that really gives Brilliant Corners an edge. The program can start paying the rent immediately, even if this place sits empty for up to two months. That's huge for the landlord, Esther Kim, who's stopped by outside. Oh, hi, nice to meet you. Kim owns three small buildings and says half her tenants use federal rental vouchers. But working with Valdez's team was so much easier because she didn't have to wait on all that red tape. The process takes forever. And then um, sometimes if I have a, like a better tenant that's willing to come in right away, I'll be like, I'm sorry, I'll just take that tenant. California actually bans voucher discrimination, but it's hard to enforce and a major problem. In fact, many people lose their voucher because they can't find any landlord to take it, especially in this tight market. Brilliant Corners also works with local vouchers that are more flexible, and every month it manages to place nearly 200 people into permanent housing. The group's chief operating officer, Chris Contreras, says when a landlord has an open unit, they can act fast. One of our housing acquisition specialists could go visit you at that unit today, inspect it, talk to you about pricing, and we would be able to take that unit off the market today. In fact, he says the program's become so popular over the past decade, some landlords offer up units even before listing them. 
Another selling point, a higher than average success rate at keeping tenants housed. Hi. Hello. Tamika Swain has been in this sunny apartment in Inglewood for three years. She used to work at a nail salon, but it wasn't enough to pay rent. She and her teenage son shuffled between living in a car and motels, and then Swain was convicted of theft. I panicked at the moment because I was like, I can't feed my son. I'm homeless. I don't know what's going to happen. I was scared. After a two-year sentence, a county program connected her to Brilliant Corners, which found this place. Like all their clients, she also gets lots of support. A case manager, mental health counseling for her depression, plus a housing coordinator. Lorena Magallanes stops in to see Swain and other clients every few months in person to catch any problems that might put their housing at risk. Maybe they're off their meds. Sometimes it could be something as simple as appliances. Tamika's stove went out the other day, and so we got her really awesome stuff. She was really excited about it because she likes to cook. Tamika Swain says it all helps her feel settled. It feels like a second family, somebody that I could call when I'm in need to even talk or be around. L.A.'s housing model is spreading in California and beyond. And even as homeless numbers here keep rising, Swain is one success story. She's in her last year of film school and has launched her own podcast called Cocktails and Stilettos. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us today. Cardiologists have developed an algorithm to detect an irregular heart rhythm called AFib weeks before it happens. It's an example of artificial intelligence finding patterns the human eye cannot see. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, a new way to predict who will develop atrial fibrillation or AFib. In the forecast, beautiful day today and clear skies overnight tonight, about 50 degrees for low. Tomorrow, a bit of springtime, temperatures inching up to the low 70s, increasing clouds through the day tomorrow, still dry though. Then for Thursday, enjoy it. Sunshine with high temperatures in the mid-70s. 62 degrees in Boston, the time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by University of New England, Maine's largest private university, on campuses in Portland and coastal Biddeford and online, une.edu. And the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond, in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. The Chinese government is suppressing LGBTQ and feminist groups in the country. Those that leave China rebuild those communities abroad. When there are things people cannot talk about in China, we talk here. That's a space we have overseas. We visit the Chinese language feminist talk show in New York City tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Republicans have picked Representative Tom Emmer as their nominee for House Speaker, but there's still no guarantee the Minnesota congressman can win enough votes in the full House to take the gavel. It's been three weeks since a group of far-right Republicans ousted Kevin McCarthy, a speaker who today expressed his frustration with the process. Remove the speaker, remove the majority leader from being speaker, remove Jim Jordan from being speaker, every single person that's won. And now we've just gone through a battle with uh, elections of nine people, one won, and now when we had a roll call vote, you couldn't get 217. 
Emmer won a simple majority of vote uh, of his colleagues behind closed doors today, but fell far short of the support he would need from nearly all Republicans during a House floor vote. House Speaker is a powerful position, second in line to the presidency, and without one, Congress remains in limbo, unable to pass any legislation. Federal authorities are looking into a shooting near the home of Republican U.S. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith of Mississippi over the weekend. Here's NPR's Debbie Elliott. The Secret Service and U.S. Capitol Police are working with the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation and local law enforcement to find out what happened. Officials say the shooting occurred around 1230 Sunday afternoon near Hyde Smith's home in Brookhaven in South Mississippi. It's not clear whether the senator was targeted. In a statement, her office said that Hyde Smith and her family were not harmed and that she's grateful for, quote, the good work of federal, state, and local law enforcement. The Capitol Police say they are coordinating with the senator's office to ensure her safety. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. On Wall Street, stocks ended higher across the board today. The Dow up 204 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A report just out today from the Harvard Graduate School of Education finds adults between 18 and 25 years old experience mental health issues at twice the rate of younger teenagers. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has more. In the national survey, nearly 30 percent of young adults reported experiencing depression and 36 percent anxiety, double the rates of teens. More than half said they felt little or no purpose in life. Many said financial and achievement pressures harm their mental health, as well as stress from climate change and gun violence. Harvard's Rick Weisbord is the study's lead author. Young adults express quite a lot of faith in each other to combat some of the pressing problems that this country is facing. They express significantly less faith in older adults to do that. Weisbord says the report finds hope, too, that strong relationships and serving others help young adults stave off mental health challenges. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Massachusetts is one of eight states in the District of Columbia suing the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. A similar federal lawsuit is being filed by a coalition more than 30 other states. The suit claims Meta violates federal law by routinely collecting data on children under age 13 without parental consent. It also claims Meta knowingly designed features on Instagram and Facebook that addict children to its platforms. Meta says it's disappointed the group has chosen litigation instead of working with the company to create age-appropriate standards. Former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney is among a group of Harvard Business School alum accusing the university of ignoring the safety of its Jewish students on campus. In an open letter to Harvard leadership, the group cites what it calls threatening pro-Palestinian demonstrations on campus. They say some Jewish students fear for their safety. Romney and others are urging Harvard to enforce its moral code of conduct. They also say demonstrators on campus should not be allowed to cover their faces. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. With their upholstery event through October, hundreds of sofa, sectional, and chair styles in sustainably sourced fabrics and leathers. CircleFurniture.com. And Brookline Booksmith. Lydia Bostianich and L. Simone Scott discuss Lydia's From Our Family Table to Yours on October 30th, brooklinebooksmith.com. Beautiful today. Clear skies tonight, about 50 degrees. Tomorrow should feel more spring-like temperatures in the low 70s, although we should have increasing clouds during the day. 62 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. DataIQ.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24 7 live support. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. We are learning more about the off-duty pilot who allegedly attempted to disable an aircraft's engines in mid-flight on Sunday night. Here is how the active pilot described the situation to air traffic controllers, as heard on LiveATC.net. Okay, I'll just uh, give you a heads up. We've got the uh, guy that tried to shut the engines down uh, out of the cockpit, um, and he... uh, doesn't sound like he's causing any issue in the back right now. I, I think he's the dude. The off-duty pilot is now facing more than 80 counts of attempted murder, and the incident has renewed concerns around mental health care for pilots. NPR's Joel Rose has been following this story. So, Joel, what can you tell us about what happened here? So this was an Alaska Airlines flight that was scheduled to fly from Everett, Washington to San Francisco. An off-duty Alaska pilot was catching a ride in the cockpit in the jump seat behind the pilots. That's normal across the industry, but what happened next is not routine at all. Federal investigators say the off-duty pilot suddenly tried to disable the engines. Fortunately, the pilots were able to physically stop him and send him back to the cabin of the plane, which landed safely in Portland, Oregon. The off-duty pilot was arrested, booked into jail on 83 counts of attempted murder. And today we learned he's facing a federal count of interfering with the flight crew as well. Obviously a really scary situation, but do we know anything about this off-duty pilot? What might have triggered this incident? His name is Joseph Emerson, and there are some wild new allegations in federal court papers that were filed today. According to the FBI, the crew said Emerson was chatting casually with the pilots, gave zero indication of anything wrong during the beginning of the flight. But at some point as the jet moved over Oregon, the first officer saw Emerson throw off his headset and say, quote, I am not okay. Mm. The crew says that's when Emerson tried to grab the fire suppression system uh, for the engines. The FBI says the pilot then grabbed Emerson's wrist and physically engaged with him, quote unquote, for about half a minute. The pilot asked Emerson to leave the cockpit, which Emerson did. And Emerson then allegedly told a flight attendant, you need to cuff me, you need to cuff me right now or it's going to be bad. Wow. So... Once this plane landed, did investigators then talk to Emerson? The FBI says they did, and that Emerson told agents that he had a, quote, nervous breakdown, had not slept in 40 hours. He allegedly told the agent that he pulled the emergency shutoff handles on the engines because, quote, I thought I was dreaming and I just want to wake up. The agent said Emerson denied taking any medication, though the FBI also says Emerson did talk about psychedelic mushrooms and said, quote, it was his first time taking mushrooms, unquote. What is not clear, though, is if he was actually under the influence of mushrooms during the flight. Emerson did allegedly tell the FBI agent that six months ago he had become depressed. And I should note, you know, that even before these latest details came out, the incident was reviving concerns across the industry about the mental health of pilots, whether they are getting the treatment they need. And Joel, what would prevent pilots from getting that sort of treatment? It's complicated. There's a stigma around seeking mental health treatment. Pilots are concerned that they will be grounded if they seek treatment, and the use of antidepressants by pilots is tightly regulated. Dennis Tager is a veteran pilot and a spokesman for the Allied Pilots Association, which represents pilots at American Airlines. What's at stake is you think that your job is at stake. The income for your family is at stake. 
I'm going to be grounded, lose my job, lose my home. And these are all awfulizing thoughts that pilots uh, go through that stop them from getting the care that they need if they need it. Federal regulators are aware of this issue and say pilots should come forward and get treatment if they need it. Clearly, many pilots, though, are still wary. NPR's Joel Rose, thank you. You're welcome. To date, Hamas has released four hostages, hostages who had been held since the October 7th massacre that claimed 1,400 lives. Some 200 other hostages are still being held in Gaza, and we are going to focus now on the central role that Qatar has played in negotiating the releases. This is not the first time the wealthy Gulf nation has stepped in as a mediator. For more, we have brought on Badr Al-Saif. He's a professor of history at Kuwait University. Welcome. Thank you. All right, give me a little bit of the history here. How, how Qatar's influence with Hamas affords it a, a unique position to try to influence Hamas. Let me first speak about the way that Qatar perceives itself in the region. Mm -hmm. It, as a small state in a region dominated by large forces, it wanted to really shine and, and play an outsized role by presenting itself as a mediator. They've done this in the past. Mm -hmm. They've uh, successfully worked on deals that relate to Yemen in 2007, Lebanon in 2008, uh, more recently, Afghanistan, as you know, in 2021. Yeah, they helped uh, get Americans Iran out. just a few mm -hmm. weeks ago. Mm -hmm. This is such helpful background. Let me steer us to that question that I started out with, which is why would Hamas listen to Qatar? Hamas has a different ties with Qatar. Qatar has been a very key interlocutor when it comes to presenting aid to Gaza infrastructure in the past. Mm. As you know, Gaza has been decimated a few times by Israel in the past, and that required a lot of building up. And the reconstruction has been largely bailed by various parties in the region, in the Middle East, but by Qatar as well. Um, they also have a representation, I believe, in Doha, a Hamas just office. like they had with yeah, the Taliban. In the capital. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it makes more sense to have that line open for them to intervene when they already have a relationship, which isn't the case, by the way, with a lot of the countries in the region. And you spoke to this a little bit, but what is in it for Qatar? This is I understand that they want to play this role. Is this about increasing their leverage on the world stage for such a tiny country? Uh, one, that's exactly it. Plus, Qatari uh, foreign policy as a small state, it requires a secure region for it to thrive. So they would like to see peace and prosperity become the mainstream in the region. That hasn't been the case, unfortunately, for the Middle East. And they can afford this as one of the richest countries in the region, a small-sized population, large GDP. And don't forget, Qatar has also been a victim of a Gulf rift in the past few years when it was blockaded by different states. So in its world conception, no one should go through this again. And hence, it strives to work with other parties to reduce conflict. So here is a challenge, which is Hamas is designated a terrorist organization by the U.S., by Israel, by others. How does Qatar navigate that, particularly in light of its status as a U.S. ally? The way it has navigated the Iran card, all of the states that you've mentioned need someone to talk to a party that they're not talking to. So when you have someone that's in the standing of Qatar that can relay accurate messages and to get the ideas through, that's helpful. I mentioned there's still a couple hundred other hostages being held by Hamas, including Americans. Would you expect Qatar to continue to work with the U.S. on their release? 
Oh, definitely. I think we are undergoing a very intense negotiation. But let's not look at the side story here. I think there is a bigger picture as well. Let's also look at the many, many lives lost from the Palestinian side and the many, many prisoners also in Israeli prisons. So I think they're trying to look at it in a holistic manner. Hmm. How is this seen in other Arab capitals? Qatar's role as, as a mediator here. Qatar's role as a mediator is welcome news. And we remember this region tends to export a lot of bad news around the world and seldom do we get good airtime. This is one of those good airtimes in which there is a country that's playing a constructive role and it fits into the larger positive role that the Gulf states are playing on the world stage from the Middle East. That was Badr Alsef, a professor of history at Kuwait University. Professor Alsef, thank you. Thank you, Mary Louise. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Using artificial intelligence, cardiologists have developed a way to predict who will develop atrial fibrillation or AFib. It's a common type of arrhythmia that can be dangerous if left untreated. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. If you've ever had an EKG or electrocardiogram, you know they're quick and painless. Tiny electrodes are placed on your chest, and your heart's electrical signals display as little waves and squiggles on a screen. Dr. Neil Yuan of the San Francisco VA Medical Center says this gives him lots of information to help make a diagnosis. We look at all those squiggles and then we say, well, we've got these rules for what sort of squiggle patterns look like what, and we have certain ideas for certain diagnoses based on certain patterns. This may sound straightforward. The EKG has been around about 100 years, and doctors know how to spot the obvious things, say a heart attack or active AFib. But inside these little squiggles and waves, there's lots of information that doctors just can't easily see. But Dr. Yuan says technology can help. The machine can learn from seeing millions of ECGs and it doesn't forget and it, you know, doesn't grow tired, <laughs> unlike, you know, humans. He says each EKG produces about 20,000 numbers to decipher, which can overwhelm the human brain, but a machine can crunch these quickly. So as part of the new study funded by the National Institutes of Health, he and some collaborators at Cedars-Sinai fed millions of data points from EKGs into a computer. What deep learning and machine learning allows us to do is it can hash through all of that information in the 20,000 different numbers. And identify complicated relationships. In his study, the goal was to identify who was at risk of AFib. So they had the machine assess the EKGs of patients who'd had AFib in the last month compared to those who had not to look for subtle differences. So it essentially takes in an ECG and then it makes a guess based off of those 20,000 numbers. And then it learns whether that guess is right or wrong. And then it adjusts its model to make a better guess next time. Turns out the model they developed actually helped them predict who would develop AFib. I'm really excited about it. Their new study, published in the medical journal JAMA Cardiology, is the first step to bringing this to clinical practice. We are at the forefront of this wave right now, right? And it's definitely coming. Used in the right ways, he says AI can help doctors do their jobs better. Allison Aubrey. NPR News. Sister, what have you done? Hey, little 
We in the radio world lost a pioneering talent this week. Dusty Street was a legendary DJ whose career began in the 1960s in San Francisco and then stretched through 80s acts, including Duran Duran and Depeche Mode, and she introduced American listeners to this song. We remember one of the first women of rock radio. That is tomorrow, here on All Things Considered. Sister, who's your superman? Hey, little sister, shotgun. It's a nice day to start again. It's a nice day for a white wedding. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Tom Emmer is the next Republican Speaker of the House. Not so fast. In the past hour, the majority whip dropped out of the running. The latest coming up in about 10 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Pretty beautiful out there today. Sunshine to close out the day. Sky should stay clear overnight tonight, about 50 for a low. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine both with temperatures all the way up to the low 70s. Thursday, sunnier and even milder. Temperatures in the mid-70s. If you wake up early tomorrow, take a look in the direction of sunrise, and you should be able to spot Venus in all its blazing glory. Venus is always east before sunrise and west after sunset. This is 90.9 WBUR, 62 degrees in Boston. The time is 449. WBUR supporters include the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. And the Boston Globe, with an all-documentary film festival returning in theaters and online tomorrow through October 29th. The ninth annual Globe Docs Film Festival features screenings and conversations with Boston Globe journalists and filmmakers. Tickets and info available at globe.com filmfest. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Former Food Network host Marcella Valladolid's widely popular online classes inspired her new cookbook about making food for family and friends. It was much more than me teaching them enchiladas, chiles rellenos. It was about connection. And that in turn became my biggest motivator in writing and developing these recipes. Next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Tempers flared at the U.N. Security Council as Arab leaders and Palestinians called on diplomats to press Israel to stop its bombardment of Gaza. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says there should be more outrage focused on Hamas, which started this latest round of violence with an unprecedented attack on Israel. But the U.S. is nudging Israel to consider ways to get more aid to Palestinians as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. 
U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has been calling for a pause in the fighting to allow more aid to get into Gaza, and he's telling the Security Council that civilians must be protected. It was a message both to Hamas and to Israel. Protecting civilians can never mean using them as human shields. Protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than one million people to evacuate to the south, where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine and no fuel, and then continuing to bomb the south itself. While he condemned what he called the appalling attacks by Hamas that set off this cycle of violence, he said this did not happen in a vacuum, pointing to Palestinian resentment of decades of Israeli occupation. Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen, was furious, calling this victim-blaming. He canceled his meeting with Guterres, compared Hamas to the Nazis, and rejected calls for a ceasefire. How you can agree to a ceasefire with someone who swore to kill and destroy your own existence. How? The proportional response to October 7 massacre is a total destruction to the last one of the Hamas. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told the council the world should help Israel defeat terrorism, though he also suggested that Israel consider humanitarian pauses to allow more aid into Gaza. And the secretary urged UN members to help contain this conflict by sending clear messages to Iran and its proxies, who he says have attacked U.S. personnel in Iraq and Syria in recent weeks. If you, like the United States, want to prevent this conflict from spreading, Tell Iran, tell its proxies, in public, in private, through every means, do not open another front against Israel in this conflict. Do not attack Israel's partners. Jordan's foreign minister, Ayman al-Safadi, said there are real fears that this conflict could spread. There's the threat of this expanding into the West Bank, into Lebanon, into other fronts. None of us want that. We're all working against that. But flanked by other Arab foreign ministers, the Jordanian official warned that the danger will continue as long as there are images of death and destruction in Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Hamas is still holding more than 200 hostages there, including Americans and other nationalities. Some family members of the hostages were at the U.N. today, too, calling on countries to pressure Hamas to free them. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. One of Europe's hottest new hip-hop acts just wrapped up its first North American tour. They're called Kneecap and hail from Northern Ireland. And while their music has a lot in common with the rap you hear in the U.S. thematically, there is something surprising about how it sounds. NPR's Fatima Al-Kassab reports from Belfast. It might sound like other rap music. The group Kneecap raps about partying and taking drugs and being young. What makes their music different, though, is that they're rapping in the Irish language. One of the oldest written languages in the world, Irish has long been associated with poetry and folklore, but... Not, you know, talking about fiddles and shamrocks all day. Kneecap rapper Mokara is 25, born right around the time that the Good Friday Peace Agreement ended the conflict known as the Troubles. For decades, the Irish language was marginalised under British rule. A generation on, there is a growing Irish language community in Belfast, and Mokara, along with his fellow rappers Moglai Bap and DJ Provi, have been credited with helping that. 
Here's a bit of their debut song. C-E-A-R-T-A, which means rights in Irish. The song was born out of a night when Moglai Bap and his friends were out spray painting around Belfast during an Irish language rights protest. But, he says, the song is about more than just language rights. We always flip everything, try and twist it and add a creative twist to everything. This is the right for us to get off our heads in Irish, to get high. High on drugs. And that required new words in the Irish language. So that was part of the band, was creating this new vocabulary that didn't really exist. Kneecap also doesn't shy away from addressing politics or their desire for Northern Ireland to join the Republic of Ireland. One of their biggest hits is titled Get Your Brits Out. It's impossible not to be political here if you're going to speak Irish. It's very hard not to be political growing up in Belfast. The Irish language has gone from being banned in government and the courts, which are under British control here, to last year becoming one of the official languages of Northern Ireland, where 12% of people speak it. Kevin O'Shannon is a tourism officer at the Cultalan Irish Cultural Centre. He remembers a time when locals fought to learn Irish in school and even risked getting arrested. Irish-speaking families managed to get a school open. They didn't get any support from government. In fact, quite the opposite. They were threatened with being arrested for teaching Irish. The biggest Irish-speaking school is now actually in Belfast, which reflects a big demographic shift. For the first time, Catholics now outnumber Protestants in Northern Ireland. That has many saying that the prospect of a referendum on Irish reunification is not a question of if, but when. And use of the Irish language is growing beyond the Catholic community. I'm a Presbyterian. Linda Irvine is a member of the Protestant and Unionist community. She set up the biggest Irish language centre in the predominantly Protestant area of East Belfast. And to her, that's no contradiction. In Irish, to say that you speak Irish, you say, I have Irish, um, to Gaelicogam. And I remember thinking at the time, I would like to be able to say to Gaelicogam, I'd like to be able to say it's part of my identity and who I am. For Linda, having Irish isn't about politics. It's about reclaiming her heritage and understanding the city that she is from, Belfast or Belfastia in Irish. You know, before I started learning Irish, I didn't know that I was born in Belfastia because nobody ever let me know that. I only knew the anglicised forms. Each month, Kneecap organises a house concert. But the music this night wasn't the rap that I was expecting. Ireland is a place where music is very important to us. Moglai Bap says that Kneecap's music is inspired by all sorts of genres, traditional as well as rebel songs. And Mokara agrees. These were all songs that were like very Republican about the unification of Ireland, very much like anti-British involvement in Ireland, and we kind of grew up listening to that like most of West Belfast did. They say rebel music in Ireland is, like hip-hop in America, a way for marginalised communities to express themselves, and their music is part of that heritage, from folk to traditional to Irish rap. Oh, it's been ages since made the front pages. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from United Airlines, committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 without relying on carbon offsets. Learn more at united.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, 
a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins face the Blackhawks in Chicago tonight. Patriots cornerback Marcus Jones will miss the rest of the season because of a shoulder injury he suffered in Week 2 against Miami. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com and the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, committed to strengthening democracy. Join a discussion on Supreme Court reform tomorrow. emkinstitute.org. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Minnesota's Tom Emmer was the top vote-getter among Republicans to become Speaker of the House a matter of hours ago. In the past half hour, he dropped out of contention. Emmer didn't have the votes needed to grab the gavel. So what next for House Republicans? Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, it's Tuesday, October 24th. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, China has announced the removal of its defense minister. One China expert says President Xi Jinping may have viewed him as a threat. Top leaders are so concerned about even the slightest challenges to their control, especially when it comes to the military. And gas stoves emit pollution that can make people sick. The gas industry forestalled regulation using tactics similar to what was used by the tobacco industry. Coming up, what to do now if you have a gas stove. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. More chaos in the Republican-led House's quest to install a new leader. Hours after being picked as his party's nominee for speaker, Minnesota's Tom Emmers has dropped out after several Republicans said they wouldn't back him. President Trump, who backed the failed bid of Jim Jordan, said electing Emmers would be a mistake. The House has been without a speaker and therefore unable to conduct business for three weeks after former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted. Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar says Republicans have to get it together and reopen the House. Every day of this MAGA madness is another day of not sending aid to Israel and Ukraine, not taking meaningful steps to fund our government, and not making sure that we're looking out for working families across this country. Emmers is the third GOP nominee to crash and burn in the race for the gavel. The next steps for the House are unclear. Lawyer Jenna Ellis is the fourth defendant to plead guilty in the Georgia 2020 election interference racketeering case that also includes former President Trump. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler has more. Ellis pleaded guilty to one felony charge of aiding and abetting false statements and writings. She's accused of participating in a hearing where numerous false claims about Georgia's 2020 election results were made. Ellis expressed remorse in a tearful statement. Ellis is the fourth defendant out of 19 to plead guilty and that agrees to cooperate in future trials across numerous schemes under a sprawling racketeering indictment. 
Lawyer Sidney Powell and bail bondsman Scott Hall admitted their roles in a plot to illegally copy election data, and attorney Kenneth Chesbrough admitted he broke the law with a plan to send fake presidential electors to Congress, all in service of overturning Trump's 2020 defeat. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. The UAW has again expanded its strikes. Today, some 5,000 workers at a GM plant in Arlington, Texas, walked off the job, joining some 40,000 other UAW workers on strike. And here's Andrea Shu has more. For the second day in a row, the UAW amped up the pressure on a big three automaker, this time calling on workers at GM's Arlington Assembly Plant to join the strike. The facility, GM's largest, makes some of its most profitable models, including the Chevy Tahoe, the Chevy Suburban, and the Cadillac Escalade. The union says GM's offer lags behind Ford's in many areas, including its cost of living adjustment and its 401k contributions. GM, in a statement, said what it's offered is substantial and historic. This strike expansion was announced just after GM reported third quarter profits of $3.1 billion, a decline from last year. Before today's escalation, the company said the strike was costing GM $200 million a week. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow up 204 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The number of Massachusetts students who are chronically absent from school has barely recovered from highs during the pandemic. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, education officials are investing in responses to the crisis. When students miss more than 10% of all school days, it increases their risk of dropout. Last year, more than one in five students statewide were absent at least that often, and over a third of low-income students. State Education Commissioner Jeff Riley announced a $4 million grant to help districts better track student absences and to work with their families. This level of absenteeism is something we've never seen before, and so... We've got to figure out a way using what we know to fix it, but also being willing to think about new responses to fix it. Next year, Riley hopes to hold districts accountable where rates of absenteeism remain high. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The state attorney general's office has reached a settlement with State Senator Ryan Fatman and his wife Stephanie for alleged illegal campaign contributions. Senator Fatman is accused of making donations to the state and local Republican committees that were improperly funneled to his wife's committee for Worcester County Register of Probate. Attorney General Andrea Campbell says the donations were directed to be used for Stephanie Fatman's re-election campaign. She has agreed to a penalty of $137,000. Ryan Fatman will pay $55,000. A new poll from UMass Amherst and WCVB finds that many Massachusetts residents support the state's right to shelter law. That's the policy that requires Massachusetts to provide food, shelter, and basics to homeless parents with children, pregnant women, and migrant families. 62% strongly or somewhat support the law, 11% strongly oppose it. Governor Maura Healey announced earlier this month that the state is expected to hit its shelter capacity by the end of the month and will no longer guarantee shelter to all families who need it. In the forecast, 62 degrees now, pretty beautiful still out there. Overnight tonight, clear skies should stay dry, about 50 degrees. Then for tomorrow, temperatures inching to the low 70s, increasing clouds during the day. And then for Thursday, sunshine highs in the mid-70s. It's 5.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Tell me if you've heard this one before. The House is in paralysis as House Republicans struggle to find a speaker. For several hours today, House Republican Whip Tom Emmer became their third speaker nominee in as many weeks, but in an internal tally, about two dozen members voted against him and, encouraged by former President Trump, too many were dug into that opposition. By later this afternoon, Emmer had dropped out, and now Republicans are weighing a plan to start over again. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales is with us now. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. I mean, <laughs> tell me more about how all this went down today. Right. It's pretty incredible in terms of how quickly all of this turned in a matter of hours. There were jokes for Emmer that he was going to see luck. His third time was going to be the charm, but it was not. The conference had moved through several rounds of internal votes earlier this morning as they narrowed down a slate of candidates from eight down to one to Emmer. But even after he first clinched a majority of votes, 117 in that room, they revoted afterwards and there were still too many who were no's, not enough that it appeared that they would be movable. So as those rounds played on, many members grew skeptical that Emmer could close a deal. One of those, Pete Sessions of Texas, said that about seven or eight of these members addressed Emmer and they did not appear that they were convinced that he should be the speaker. Sessions himself predicted before they reconvened this afternoon that they would have to revisit this slate of candidates again with Emmer if he were to step down. And as we've seen, he's become the shortest tenure yet this month of a nominee to become speaker. Were there actual issues at play here, like policy issues that took down his bid for speaker? Yes, there was. Members raised questions about his support of former President Trump, for example. He had endorsed him in 2016 and 2020, but his loyalty has been questioned in recent years. For example, he has not endorsed Trump for president in this upcoming election, and he previously voted to certify the 2020 presidential election. And these days, that can hurt you as a speaker nominee in this conference. And um, you mentioned Trump a couple of times there. How large does he loom over all this? Very large. He had said earlier today that Emmer should not be speaker, and that really seemed to fuel his detractors in that room today. And in in terms of framing these attacks, um, these really speak directly to House Republicans, and so they followed his lead there. I spoke to one member, Mike Johnson, who was one of these original candidates, and he tried to say that they could move past this, but apparently they could not. What now? So uh, according to my colleague Deirdre Walsh, there is a plan to start over yet again. Another candidate forum tonight. This is how we started the week. Monday evening, all of these candidates made their pitches to the conference. And so that looks like where they're going to go again this evening with candidates making pitches could be new candidates this evening, could include previous candidates, for example. Now, the acting speaker, Patrick McHenry, is also talking about what the conference conference rules are, what the next steps are. So they're starting all over, but the ending is unclear, and they face a lot of pressure to come to some sort of solution. We are just a few weeks away now from a government shutdown deadline, and many members want to move on aid for Israel, showing support for Israel. But again, they appear stuck, so we'll see what happens. That is NPR's very busy congressional (laughs) correspondent, Claudia Grisales. Thank you. Thank you.
Gas utilities and their trade group used tobacco industry tactics to confuse the public about the health risks of cooking with a gas stove. That is the conclusion of an investigation by NPR and the Climate Investigation Center. About 40 percent of U.S. homes have a gas stove, so a lot of us are asking, well, what do I do now? Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk worked on the investigation and joins us now. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So, Jeff, I've got to level with you a minute here. (laughs) I am one of those Americans who every night goes home, most nights at least, and makes their dinner using their gas stove. So how big of a problem is this for me and everyone else in the same situation? Uh, The scientists, doctors, and health researchers I've talked with have a range of opinions, but the basic message is that children and people with existing breathing problems are most at risk. Uh, There's research showing that just under 13% of childhood asthma cases in the U.S. can be attributed to gas stoves. The industry doesn't agree with that conclusion uh, from that study, but we do know that gas stoves emit nitrogen dioxide, and that, in high enough concentrations, can trigger or even cause breathing problems. Okay, and according to the investigation, scientists in the industry, they've known about this for quite some time. Am am I getting that right? Yes, we documented in our investigation that there was growing concern about indoor air pollution from gas stoves back in the 1960s. At that time, the gas stove sales, they were declining. The American Gas Association tried to reverse that with a marketing campaign it called Operation Attack. Uh, Around the same time, the industry started funding research on stoves and air quality. Uh, They often used the same scientists and public relation firms as the tobacco industry and really latched on to the uncertainties that exist in any body of science. Uh, The industry highlighted those uncertainties, and that's kept regulators at bay for decades. Okay, I mean, anybody who has gone appliance shopping recently knows that stoves, they are not cheap. Many people may not have the money to just go out and buy a new one who are concerned here. So I want to ask, is running the hood over a stove enough to offset the danger? The gas industry has long said that range hoods are an important part of mitigating pollution from cooking, though they tend to focus more on the fumes from cooking the food itself than on nitrogen dioxide from burning natural gas. Uh, For range hoods, the problem is most people don't use them because they're loud. And a lot of hoods, they just recirculate air. They don't vent the pollution outside. Also, many homes, they just don't even have a hood. Uh, Some state and local governments are changing that. California now requires more powerful range hoods for gas stoves versus electric ones in new homes. But to fix this nitrogen dioxide problem, really the best thing is to get an electric range when it's time to buy a new stove. Until then, you can use the hood if it vents outdoors or open windows each time you cook. Uh, you can also look for ways to use your gas stove less. There are electric induction burners that you can buy for less than $100. That sit, they just sit right next to the stove on the countertop. Right. And Jeff, I mean, the industry has avoided regulation of gas stoves for decades. But is there any indication now that regulation could be coming? You probably remember that kerfuffle last winter when a a Consumer Product Safety Commission member suggested that the agency might ban gas stoves. I'm not sure there's appetite for that. And it would apply only to new stoves, not existing ones. Uh, Still, the commission is examining this issue now, and we're watching for developments. Most of the change, though, is happening with local governments. They're banning gas hookups in new homes in some places, often as part of their climate change plans. Uh, Natural gas is mostly methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas and your stove it's connected you know with a pipe that delivers gas that runs out the back to the meter to pipelines outside and all the way back to a well where the gas comes out of the ground that entire system leaks methane from beginning to end 
All right. Truly some news you can use there. That's Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk. And you can read that full investigation on NPR.org. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. There is turbulence in the top ranks of China's ruling Communist Party. The country's leadership announced today it was removing its defense minister from his position, the second minister to go this year. NPR's Emily Fang tries to parse what is going on. Defense Chief Li Shangfu was last seen August 29th, two months after speaking at an international defense forum in Singapore. But by September, he'd been missing meetings and had disappeared from the public eye. And today, China's National Evening News Bulletin confirmed he's been formally dismissed. Also in the announcement, news that Qing Gang, China's former foreign minister, missing since June and removed from his post in July, had also lost his cabinet title. So it's never been easy to be a high-ranking member of the military because there is an understanding that that is the bedrock of regime security. This is Joseph Terigian, a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and who studies Chinese history. He notes the death of Marshal Lin Biao, who died in a plane crash after allegedly trying to defect, and Defense Minister Peng Dehuai, imprisoned and tortured to death in the 1970s. They had been highly influential figures in the party. But the defense ministers in recent years haven't been people with that kind of prestige within the party. By contrast, Li Shangfu was more of an outward-facing figurehead. But that does not mean Chinese leader Xi Jinping did not see him as a threat, he says. Top leaders are so concerned about even the slightest challenges to their control that especially when there's any doubt, especially when it comes to the military, they have always been extremely proactive about addressing those kinds of challenges. There's been no explanation offered for why both China's defense and foreign ministers were removed after just a few months on the job, and there's been no replacement named for Li, despite the fact that Beijing will host the annual Xiangshan Security Forum this coming Sunday, but now has no defense chief to meet other military heads. Political commentator Deng Yuwen says Li's removal does not look great. Deng says while this is nevertheless damaging to Chinese leader Xi Jinping's personal image, it will not destabilize his hold on power for now. Emily Fang, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, families of those who are being held hostage by the militant group Hamas watch and wait in fear of a possible Israeli ground invasion in Gaza. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, offering an upholstery event through October. You can work with interior designers to create a new, healthy look for your home. CircleFurniture.com. And the Harvard Art Museums, with the new exhibition, Objects of Addiction, Opium, Empire, and the Chinese Art Trade. Now on view, HarvardArtMuseums.org. Stocks were upward bound today. The Dow rose more than six-tenths of a percent. S&P gained nearly three-quarters of a percent. And the Nasdaq picked up nearly a full percent. Monthly unemployment rates dropped in 23 of the state's labor markets in September and remained unchanged in the 24th market. In more good news, the Massachusetts Office of Labor and Workforce Development says 15 of the state's labor markets gained jobs since this time last year. The biggest gains were in Barnstable, Boston and Cambridge, and the Lemister Gardner area. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, presenting Luke's Leads Beethoven with popular guest conductor Václav Luke's. This weekend, handelandhaydn.org. And Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. waldenlocalmeat.com. After you get news alerts all day long, it can be tough to get a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective live on the WBR mobile app. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. In the forecast, clear and dry overnight tonight, about 50 degrees. Tomorrow, a bit of springtime temperatures inching to the low 70s with mostly sunny skies until clouds move in later in the day. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases, in a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A beloved piece of playground equipment turns 100 years old this week. All Things Considered producer Matt Ozug has our story. When I read that the patent for the jungle gym was turning 100, I thought, simple story, call an expert. Hi, this is Mary. Find some old tape of kids playing. If you're like most kids, your very favorite time of day... Case closed, right? ...is recess. Wrong. So wrong. It turns out that the history of the jungle gym and its sibling, the monkey bars, is full of weird and delightful twists, taking us from Japan to suburban Chicago, from theoretical math to primatology. Our journey starts with a PhD candidate named Luke Fannin. Uh, just for a little bit of context, I'm, I'm a primatologist. I'm actually in Indonesia right now. So I'm on the island of Borneo. So I'm like fresh off of falling apes through the forest. I'm chock full of orangutan videos of them swinging. And they do all these crazy splits. And they're actually very fantastic. A few years ago, Fannin, who spends a lot of time watching animals swing from trees, started wondering. You know, why are they called the monkey bars? And I was like, where did the name come from? And so I dug in and I found the original patent. He found the patent for the granddaddy of the monkey bars, the jungle gym, 
filed by someone named Sebastian Hinton. His nickname was Ted, but Sebastian Hinton, who the, the inventor of the monkey bars, Ted was a patent attorney in Winnetka, Illinois. So Fannin goes to Winnetka where... I'm going to do a rhythm on it for you using a piece of wood. Ready? That's Mary Trishman on percussion. She's also... I'm the executive director at the Winnetka Historical Society. I'm looking at the 100-year-old jungle gym. It's preserved in the backyard of an old Victorian home that serves as the Winnetka Historical Society. So it's a little bit of a hidden treasure. It looks just like a classic jungle gym. Stacked cubes of slightly rusty pipes. I mean, it's very simple, but very aesthetically pleasing. I think modern-day playground equipment, it's very busy. But like this thing, just the simplicity of it is is beautiful. We have had a number of neighborhood kids with their nannies discover this. Who have to be told politely, no climbing. We aren't like the cranky neighbors who's like, get out of our yard! We, we come out and kindly explain that it's not safe to climb up. The story of how Sebastian Hinton of Winnetka, Illinois, came to invent the jungle gym goes back to his childhood and his father, Charles. Sebastian's dad... Charles. Charles Howard Hinton was, was a mathematician. The mathematician. Like a famous, famous mathematician, right? Yes. Huge into trying to uncover the fourth dimension before even Einstein had started to think about the fourth dimension as time. You know, he was trying to do it in Euclidean space and geometry. Charles, the dad, also wrote sci-fi before there was sci-fi. He called them scientific romances and invented a baseball pitching machine powered by gunpowder. But yes, for the purposes of this story, a theorist of the fourth dimension. And he wrote an article called What is the Fourth Dimension? The Fourth Dimension by Charles Howard Hinton. I have endeavored to present the subject of the higher dimensionality of space. Anyway, Charles Hinton had moved the family to Japan, where he was a frustrated math teacher. And he's lamenting to his family. He's going, you know, the reason these students, they can't grasp the fourth dimension is because they were never exposed to the third dimension as children. He really wanted to help children understand three dimensions better. And so he designed this 3D structure out of bamboo. He goes, I'm going to try and teach my kids about three dimensions by building this bamboo grid in my backyard that's three-dimensional and has all these individual boxes. So a bamboo jungle gym. Where the junctions would be, he would put X, Y, Z coordinates. And when the kids were hanging out with dad, he would say, all right, kids, go to coordinate X2, Y4, Z3, go. And all the kids would race each other towards the correct coordinate. If that does not sound like a fun game to you, you are not alone. They just climb around. And he'd be like, no, that's not right. You're not at X2. <laughs> they'd be like, what? We're, we're king of the mountain. We're king of the castle. And so years later, around 1920, Ted Hinton, Charles's son, is now a patent lawyer in Illinois when he remembers how much fun he had climbing on the bamboo. And he goes, that's what I remember. I don't remember anything about the math, but I remember that was so fun. So fun, he had plans to build one for his own kids. And he begins recounting all of this at a dinner party with a bunch of local educators, including the superintendent of the Winnetka City Schools, Carlton Washburn. I'm imagining his eyes widening. Widening because the Winnetka Schools were a hotbed for something called whole child education. 
you teach them how to be humans. You teach them how to be healthy. He's like, we need to build this in the schools. I'm just imagining, like, if he's having this dinner party almost anywhere else in the world, the jungle gym doesn't get built, right? At least it, it only stays in Hinton's backyard. It never becomes sort of the cultural mainstay that is now ubiquitous on most playgrounds. There's something else about the design of the jungle gym that may explain why it has endured for so long. When I think of jungle gym, I think of challenging play. They can swing in heights. This is Ellen Sonsetter. And I'm a professor at the Department of Physical Education and Health at Queen Maud University College in Trondheim in Norway. She looks at how kids use play structures and actually seek out a certain degree of risk. I would uh, think of uh, monkey bars where you can hang upside down, jump from high places, a lot of challenging play and also risky play. And that, she says, is a good thing. Yeah. That's good for children. She says risky play helps kids' physical development, think motor skills, and their mental health. It builds courage, uh, self-confidence, and also we've seen that it also reduces anxiety. And unlike a lot of newer equipment that tells kids how it's supposed to be used, she says the beauty of the jungle gym is in its simplicity. A monkey bar could be used in many different ways, and it therefore also affords creativity among children. This all may help explain why the jungle gym has endured a hundred years, but what about Luke Fannin's original question, how the monkey bars got their name? Well, listen to how Hinton described his invention in the original 1923 patent. He calls it a kind of forest top through which a troop of children may play, like a troop of monkeys. There's an illustration of it in the last patent he had approved. It basically is a jungle gym, and then adhered next to it is the accessory monkey runway. A.K.A. the monkey bars. But it's worth remembering, the inventor was a patent lawyer, not a primatologist. That behavior, that swinging your arms is very much an ape behavior. So even though they're, they're monkey bars, it's really an ape-like behavior. So technically... Ape bars? If you want to be uh, pedantic about it, but <laughs> I, I love the term monkey bars. Me too. And the term jungle gym, that rings true whether we're talking monkeys, apes, or the kids that still swing on it. Happy 100th birthday, jungle gym. Matt Ozug, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Today, House Republicans chose Tom Emmer from Minnesota to be their third nominee for speaker in as many weeks, but all for naught. This afternoon, Emmer dropped out. The latest is coming up next here at 90.9 WBUR. Bruins face the Blackhawks in Chicago tonight. The Bees are 5-0 and on the season. Celtics have a final night of rest tonight before they start the regular season. They'll be in New York tomorrow to face the Knicks. And Patriots cornerback Marcus Jones will miss the rest of the season because of a shoulder injury he suffered in week two against Miami. This is WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade six to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. And Merrimack Repertory Theater with Gaslight, a new adaptation of the gripping psychological thriller 
now through November 5th. Tickets at MRT.org. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In New York City, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is urging allies to send a clear message to Iran as he tries to keep the conflict in Gaza from spreading to neighboring countries. Speaking at a U.N. Security Council meeting, Blinken urged members to use their influence with Iran to tell them not to open up any new fronts against Israel or attack its partners. To all the members of this council, if you, like the United States, want to prevent this conflict from spreading, tell Iran, tell its proxies, in public, in private, through every means, do not open another front against Israel in this conflict. Do not attack Israel's partners. Blinken says Iranian proxies have attacked U.S. personnel in Iraq and Syria in recent weeks. He warned any further escalation or attacks on U.S. personnel would result in what he described as swift and decisive action. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is warning that there's a shortage of a new drug designed to protect young children against RSV. Here's NPR's Rob Stein with more. The CDC issued an alert to doctors that a recently approved drug that boosts babies' immunity against the common respiratory virus is in short supply. As a result, the CDC says doctors should prioritize the highest dose of the drug for babies who have the greatest risk of getting severely ill from RSV. That would include infants younger than six months old and those with other health problems. And doctors should preserve a lower dose for babies who weigh less than 11 pounds. The alert comes as the number of RSV cases has started increasing. Rob Stein, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street after Verizon and some other big companies reported better than expected profits during the summer. The tech-heavy Nasdaq added 121 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the MBTA wants repair work on narrow tracks along the Green Line extension to start as soon as possible. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has our report. General Manager Phil Eng says he's aiming to have the entire length of track on the Green Line extension, or GLX, brought up to industry standard within a few weeks. Eng told MBTA board members he is reviewing a proposal by the contractors who worked on the expansion project, and overnight repairs could start as soon as November 1st. And that would be 9 p.m. at night to 5 a.m. in the morning, potentially 10 to 14 nights of work. Eng says the T will release a repair schedule once it is finalized. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Starting next year, the city of Boston will begin charging a new stormwater fee. The money will be used to expand and improve the city's storm runoff network to help reduce contaminants in Boston waterways. The new fees will affect buildings of more than six units and some property owners who have undeveloped land, such as parking lots. Homeowners in Boston and those with small multifamily units are not expected to see a change in their bills. The Old North Church in Boston marked a milestone this afternoon. The church's organ was tuned for the 100th time. The organ is more than 250 years old and needs the tune-ups. The Old North Church's Emily Spence says the instrument was built specifically for this spot. 
it was built in 1759 by Thomas Johnston. So it just sounds really incredible in this space. Old North has wonderful acoustics, but the organ, when you hear it being played, it really fills the space in such a unique and powerful way. The Old North Church is the oldest surviving church building in Boston. It's the one if by land, two if by sea church. It marks its 300th anniversary this year. Boston's Children's Chorus is expanding its partnership with Boston Public Schools. Students from six schools across the city will take part in weekly rehearsals throughout the academic year. The collaboration will provide choral programs to more than 1,500 elementary, middle school, and high school students in the city. The forecast is just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. Sky should stay clear overnight tonight, about 50 at the lowest for tomorrow, sunshine and clouds both. Temperatures all the way up to the low 70s tomorrow. Thursday should be even sunnier and even milder, maybe up in the mid-70s. 60 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Once Michael Cohen was the Trump Organization's executive vice president and Donald Trump's personal attorney. But the two men split after Cohen faced legal action for some of his Trump-related business dealings. Now, thanks to information from Cohen, Trump is in legal trouble of his own. And today, Cohen testified in a New York courtroom against his former boss. NPR's Andrea Bernstein was there. So, Andrea, tell us, what was it like in court today? So, hey, Juana. So, Trump and Cohen sat yards from each other in this civil trial with $250 million at stake for Trump. So far, the evidence in the case has been lots and lots of documents, spreadsheets, testimony by bookkeepers. Not the most exciting. Today was dramatically different. Michael Cohen was once so close to Trump, he said he would take a bullet for him. But Trump stopped paying Cohen's legal bills. And since then, Cohen's been taking aim right at the heart of what makes Trump Trump, his business model. What's so different about Michael Cohen's testimony and all the other witnesses is that Cohen wants to divulge Trump's secrets. Over and over again today, Cohen described the way he would, quote, reverse engineer Trump's asset values to produce the numbers Trump wanted, not the actual values of the properties. Say more about that. How did Trump value his assets, according to Michael Cohen? So Cohen said he would typically get a call from Trump's assistant that Mr. Trump would like to see me. And then he'd go into Trump's office with Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer. And Trump would look at an asset sheet and say, according to Cohen, I'm not worth four and a half billion dollars. I'm worth more like six. 
Cohen said they would then change the numbers by, for example, plugging in the values of the most expensive apartments in New York City. Sometimes Cohen said they would just Google apartments to find higher values. Cohen said nothing was written down, quote, only to the extent we changed the numbers and the change numbers would be in red pen. Huh. I mean, Andrea, you have been all over the story. and It jumped out to me when you described today as dramatically different. So tell us, what was the atmosphere like in court today? So it was heated. It started with Trump's lawyers trying to call off court entirely because some members of the AG's team had tested positive for COVID last week. Trump's lawyer, Chris Kyes, said continuing the trial was irresponsible, adding it was only continuing because, quote, nothing else matters besides pursuing President Trump. The judge said the trial would go on. People could wear masks. But the former president and his lawyers all continued maskless, and the heated exchanges continued all afternoon through Cohen's cross-examination. Outside of the courtroom, former President Trump told reporters today that his team is not worried. He said that Michael Cohen is a liar, he's a convicted felon. Did that come up inside court? Oh, yes. The AG, Colleen Faherty, started her questioning by going over Cohen's 2018 guilty plea for tax evasion, lying to a bank, and committing campaign finance crimes. That was about the hush money payments. Cohen was also convicted of lying to Congress. So the AG wanted to get all that out of the way, but Trump attorney Alina Haba wanted to dwell on it in cross-examination. She homed in on the fact that Cohen has said since his guilty plea, he did not commit tax evasion. So Haba said to Cohen, you lied to the judge when you pleaded guilty to tax evasion. And Cohen said today, yes, he had lied. Almost at the end of questioning, she said, you lied to the judge in your criminal case. I'm supposed to believe you're not going to lie to me now. You've lied under oath numerous times. Yes, he said. And that's kind of where the day ended. Andrea, in a sentence, what happens next? Cohen's cross-examination continues, and more lawyers, insurers, and Trump employees will fill out the week. NPR's Andrea Bernstein, thank you. Thank you. The release of four hostages by the militant group Hamas has raised hopes that more of the over 200 abducted Israelis and foreign nationals could be set free. One of the Israeli hostages released late last night said she had been through a living hell. 85-year-old Yokeved Lifshitz spoke to journalists at a press conference at a Tel Aviv hospital where she was being treated after her release. Her daughter stood at her side and translated. My mom is saying that she was taken on the back of a motorbike, that she was taken through the plowed fields, and that while she was being taken, she was hit by a stick. Hit by sticks. But she added that she was treated, quote, kindly by her captors. When she first arrived, they told them that they are Muslims and they're not going to hurt them, and that they ate the same food that the Hamas was eating. With each passing day, with prospects for a ground invasion growing, families of the remaining hostages grow more anxious about their fate. NPR spoke with the parents of two kidnapping victims, and as Peter Kenyon reports, their days are filled with dread as they wait for news. The Tribe of Nova Festival, staged near Kibbutz Reim in southern Israel, not far from the border with the Gaza Strip, was supposed to be a celebration of, quote, friends, love, and freedom, a night of dancing and revelry. Hamas had other plans. 21-year-old Maya Regev and her 18-year-old brother Itai were among those looking to have a good time at the festival. On Saturday, October 7th, their father Ilan had no idea anything was amiss when his phone began ringing. It was the kind of call every parent dreads. 
Maya said, Dad, they shot us, they shot us, though Ilan couldn't tell if she had been hit or if their car had been shot at. Maya screams, he's killing us, Dad, he's killing us, and then says, Dad, I love you, we're inside the car. Ilan says, quote, I'm coming, honey, send me the location, and then the call breaks off. Ilan Regev says he immediately drove south, not knowing if his daughter or son were wounded or even still alive. He says all the way there he was phoning the police, but no one answered. When he reached a hospital in southern Israel, he found his children weren't there. He tried to find someone from the military who could tell him what was going on. To talk with him to, and they can tell us what happened. There is no, no one with who to talk. Only in Monday, they come to us in the night and they tell us that both of my children have been kidnapped. Maya and Itai's mother, Mirit, would learn of the phone call and Ilan's desperate drive to the south a bit later on. She got her first word of the Hamas attack from the news. I turned on the television, and in that moment, my life went upside down completely. Channel 12 was on nonstop. I see kids get out of the bushes, and I am telling myself, my kids must be hiding. There is no way this is happening to them. At that time, I do not know what is happening with Maya. To this day, we have not received a video of Maya. Marit Regev says they released audio of Maya's call in hopes of spurring greater efforts to release the hostages. She also feels an overwhelming desire for a sign that they are alive. We do everything. We shout Maya's last cry to her father in front of the whole world so they will know and bring our children home. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has promised to do everything possible to rescue the hostages. He has also spoken of a large ground invasion of the Gaza Strip, which some say could endanger the hostages. The Regevs are not among the families who have been loudly condemning Netanyahu or the IDF or Israeli intelligence for failing to anticipate the Hamas attack. Ilan Regev says Israel's army is the best. For now, they are among the hundreds of mothers and fathers desperately hoping someone can win the release of their children and bring them back home. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Hamas attacks and Israel's retaliation have left many people at a loss for words. Others have said something publicly that they thought sounded well-meaning, then experienced a backlash. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose has this look at a fraught moment. The day after the initial Hamas attack, Tahil Sharma posted a meme on social media. Three children in the Holy Land, one Christian, one Muslim, and one Jew, who are all standing together in front of the Western Wall and the Dome of the Rock Mosque. Sharma is from a Hindu and Sikh background and serves as an interfaith minister with the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles. I wanted to be very clear that like, peace has to be the end goal of this conflict and what we're looking for. But the response was not what he expected. And I had a slew of people actually come in and say, you are misinterpreting or misunderstanding the circumstances of this conflict. You are trying to engage in kumbaya. The only way this is going to work is if this side wins. Which left him at a loss, especially given his work as an interfaith minister. It was the first time I felt paralysis. Trying to speak up for peace should not be the issue here. But somehow even mentioning the idea of peace was almost an erasure of suffering, which made me 
respond by going quiet. It's really challenging to do this through social media just because social media is not set up for dialogue. It's not set up for listening and understanding, and so much gets lost. Phoebe Milliken directs a graduate program at Hartford International University on building peace. Public stuff is really hard because that's not about listening, is it? You know, it's about making some sort of a statement. And if how you show you support people is by, you know, showing that you're listening to them, you know, social media really undermines all of that. It's a lesson Stephen Rohde has learned over many years, leading the organization Interfaith Communities United for Justice and Peace. But the pressure to say something is real. And it's in that space that I do struggle and people will consider me insufficiently outraged by what uh, went on in Israel. Rhodey says that disappointment comes from not just his Jewish-Israeli friends or his Muslim-Palestinian friends, but from anyone who demands he choose a side. They uh, jump to conclusions that I am somehow excusing uh, one side's uh, atrocities by citing the other side's atrocities, and that's not what I'm doing because uh, we will get nowhere unless we engage with each other. Engage not in arguments, say, about who has the greater religious claim to land, but instead, says Hartford's Phoebe Milliken, focus on common religious values, including care for neighbors and the most vulnerable. Being able to sort of connect to those values is something that I think a lot of people see as, as a spiritual practice, as a Muslim or as a Jew or as a Christian or, or as a Buddhist. A value that they see in the religious other as well can help deepen these conversations and allow for these spaces where some of that vulnerability can be possible. And when it comes to figuring out what to say, she suggests the less public approach. Reach out one-on-one, -on -one. make the call or the text or the email to say, I'm thinking about you. How are you? Then, Milliken says, be willing to listen. Jason DeRose, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, some businesses that were part of a test run of a four-day work week say, try it, you'll like it. Our story in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies overnight tonight, about 50 degrees. Tomorrow, temperatures should inch up to the low 70s. Clouds increasing through the day should be dry, though. And then for Thursday, enjoy it. Sunshine with highs in the mid-70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And Circle Furniture, with sustainably sourced sectionals, sofas, ottomans, and more during their annual upholstery event through October. CircleFurniture.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition, a radio program that is consistent. You hear the same voices at the same time every morning, no matter what is happening in the world. 
you hear familiar voices. This morning, we bring you news of a huge legal settlement. Bringing often unfamiliar and surprising facts. Unidentified anomalous phenomena. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Healthcare workers across the country are facing a mental health crisis. A new survey from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention finds that burnout, anxiety, and depression have gotten worse for healthcare workers in the past five years. NPR's Ping Huang reports. Sarah Warren started her nursing career at a Florida hospital in 2018. It was challenging from the start. Within my first six months as a nurse, I actually was choked with my stethoscope by a patient. She kept working through the thick of the pandemic. She worked mandatory overtime, straining her body, turning and lifting patients that were three times her size. Over three more years, it led to serious burnout and injury. And I got to a point at the end of um, 2021 where I just didn't recognize myself anymore. I had given everything emotionally and mentally to this role. Warren's experience of extreme stress and burnout are not unique. To label our current and long-standing challenge a crisis is an understatement. That's Dr. Casey Chosewood, director of the CDC's Office for Worker Health. Many of our nation's health care systems are at their breaking point. Chosewood is co-author of a new survey published by CDC that shows that the mental health crisis got a lot worse during the pandemic. Nearly half of the healthcare workers surveyed reported burnout last year. Dr. Deborah Howery, CDC's chief medical officer, says workplace harassment is also up. In the healthcare setting, it could be threats of violence from patients, family members upset about a long wait, um, just those frustrations, but it increased. It nearly doubled during this time. That harassment is linked to higher levels of anxiety, depression, and burnout. Nearly half of healthcare workers said they were probably going to look for new jobs. CDC is calling for healthcare systems to take immediate steps to address worker burnout by building trust with employees and increasing supervisor support. Sarah Warren, the nurse from Florida, thinks the field also needs some new laws and standards. She left her nursing job in 2022, and she misses it. What I would give to be able to just care for my patients, but I can't do that. And so many other healthcare workers are in that same position. The system has placed us there. She started a nonprofit that works to get better conditions and mental health support for healthcare workers. Ping Huang, NPR News. It's a part of getting older that many people worry about. The increased chance of developing diseases like Alzheimer's that cause dementia. But in wealthy countries, getting an early diagnosis can at least help a person's family understand and support them and sometimes get them on medications that can ease their symptoms. In lower income countries, many people with dementia don't get that chance and suffer needlessly as their condition goes unrecognized. NPR's Nareet Eisenman reports on an effort to change that in Kenya. So this is the house here? I think so. To give a sense of how big a challenge dementia poses in Kenya, a community health volunteer named Susan Matua is leading me through an orange grove to a small concrete block house 
belonging to a widow named Joyce Matizia. Matizia, who's 71, is full of laughter as she teaches me the proper greeting in the local language here called Kamba. But her mood turns sad as she describes some ways her mind started betraying her beginning about six years ago. Like she'd go to check on her chickens and, without quite realizing it, place her house keys next to the eggs. Then there was a time her church entrusted her with the funds for a building project. About $130, she says. A hefty sum in this farming community just outside the southeastern town of Wote. Motizia, who was church treasurer, says when she went to deposit the money in the bank, she realized she had completely forgotten where she had stowed it. For three months, she told no one, praying she'd find the cash before anyone asked for it. Until one day she happened upon it, stashed under her mattress. No one ever found out, she says. But even then, Motizia says of this problem of forgetting, as she calls it, I just thought it was because I'm getting older. It never occurred to her that she might have a medical condition. Until last spring, when she was first visited by Susan Matua, the community health volunteer who's brought me here today. Matua is one of 10 locals who were enlisted by a team of Kenyan researchers to go house to house among 3,500 seniors in the area armed with a screening tool. Matua takes it out of her purse. It's essentially a checklist of questions. Let me show you. Things like, have you been feeling isolated? Have you had memory lapses? Can you repeat this sequence of words? Like here, we have house, we have a boat, we have fish. And I tell them, repeat as I've said. Motizia's responses raised enough red flags for Motua to refer her to the local hospital for a professional opinion. The lead researcher behind this effort is Christine Musiemi of the nonprofit Africa Mental Health Research and Training Foundation. Speaking from her office in Kenya's capital of Nairobi, Musiemi explains that the first goal was to answer a pretty basic question. How prevalent is dementia in Kenya? That has been a life-changing program in Kenya because it is the first one to generate that information and evidence. Normally, the screening questionnaire is used by healthcare workers, but the hospital in Wot has just one psychiatrist on staff. Serving a population of a million. So in the entire county, there is no other psychiatrist. By training up the volunteers to do the initial screening, Musiemi's team was able to estimate that among adults over age 60 in the county, 9% have some form of dementia. Musiemi says getting that data has been crucial because it's helping her make the case for the ultimate goal here, ensuring that Kenyans with dementia get early care for their condition. By referring all these people who screen positive to the hospital. We are creating a need, telling the policymakers that, you know, something needs to be done about dementia. And the project is actually part of a global initiative to address dementia called the Davos Alzheimer's Collective that's funded by the World Economic Forum and is supporting similar efforts in rich countries like the United States, but also many lower income ones like Armenia, Brazil, Jamaica and Mexico. In Kenya, Musiemi says the next task will be to ensure that people who screen positive have more places to seek help and access to psychotropic medications that can sometimes ease dementia symptoms. For example, if someone is having hallucinations. But Musiemi says it can often also be enormously effective to simply treat other conditions that can exacerbate dementia, 
diabetes, AIDS, and hypertension. So we're just improving the quality of life of this person. And back at her home by the Orange Grove, Joyce Motizia says that was her experience. She did get to the hospital, where she was given pills to bring down her blood pressure. The effect on her mind was noticeable. Now, she says, I can make plans with friends and still remember it when they show up. But best of all is a sense of peace. Before, Motsia says, I was so stressed wondering what was happening to me, having someone you can talk to about this. It felt like God's grace. Narit Eisenman, NPR News, Wote, Kenya. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. Subaru has donated more than $51 million to support the adoption, rescue, transport, and health of more than 420,000 animals. Learn more at Subaru.com pets. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K-12 learning. More at edutopia.org. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies overnight tonight. Should be a nice night, not as chilly as last night, 50 degrees overnight. And then for tomorrow, temperatures could creep up to the low 70s, increasing clouds during the day. For Thursday, glorious sunshine with temperatures in the mid-70s. 58 now in Boston at 559. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some humanitarian aid, water, food, and medicine started coming through the Rafah crossing in Egypt today, but President Biden says it's not been arriving to Gaza quickly enough. Coming up, Washington says it supports Israel but has questions about its actions in Gaza. Today is Tuesday, October 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a global four-day workweek trial has yielded some success stories. The owners of one company switched to a 32-hour workweek and did not cut back on pay. You lose productivity, and when you lose productivity, you lose some volume and you lose profit. Also in baseball playoffs, it's Game 7 tonight for the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Philadelphia Phillies. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The search for a Republican nominee for the speakership continues after the party's latest pick, GOP whip Tom Emmer, dropped out today because he says he didn't have the votes needed. Per the House Republican Conference chair, a candidate forum is underway yet again. The House has been without a speaker for three weeks after former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted. Today he addressed the divisions, keeping the House from getting a new leader. Every single nominee they selected has been able to do this job. The challenge that we have here is these eight Republicans. Referring there to the eight led by Florida Congressman Matt Gates, who voted him out of the Speaker's chair. The GOP holds the House by a small majority, so any Speaker candidate will need nearly all Republican House members to vote for them. Among those in frame now, Deputy Whip Mike Johnson of Louisiana, though with three failed efforts to get a nominee who can garner the votes, the next steps are not clear. Israel's ambassador to the United Nations is calling on Secretary General Antonio Guterres to step down after comments Guterres made saying Israel should pull back its bombing campaign in Gaza so that civilians can get the help they need. That came after saying that the terror attacks committed by Hamas were egregious. I have condemned unequivocally the horrifying and unprecedented 7 October acts of terror by Hamas in Israel. Nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring and kidnapping of civilians or the launching of rockets against civilian targets. Israel's foreign minister Eli Cohen canceled a meeting with Guterres today. And Israeli helicopters and special forces moved to confront Hamas militants who landed on the beach south of the Israeli city of Ashkelon. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports French President Emmanuel Macron visited Israel and called for an international coalition to fight Hamas. The clashes along the coast of the Gaza Strip mark Hamas's latest effort to attack Israel, an assault that began with the killing of more than 1,400 people on October 7th. World leaders have been trying to find a way to calm the situation. French President Emmanuel Macron arrived Tuesday and proposed that an anti-ISIS coalition be reformed to combat Hamas. He gave no details on how the U.S.-led coalition that includes dozens of countries but not Israel would get involved in the fighting. Macron warned of the danger of the conflict spreading. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. The UAW is again expanding its strike against Detroit's three big automakers. Today, another 5,000 workers walked off their jobs at a General Motors assembly plant in Arlington, Texas, one of the automakers' largest plants. That plant helps produce some of GM's most profitable SUV models, including the Chevy Tahoe, the Chevy Suburban, the GMC Yukon, and the Cadillac Escalade. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A report just out today from the Harvard Graduate School of Education finds adults between 18 and 25 years old experience mental health issues at twice the rate of younger teenagers. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has more. In the national survey, nearly 30 percent of young adults reported experiencing depression and 36 percent anxiety, double the rates of teens. More than half said they felt little or no purpose in life. Many said financial and achievement pressures harm their mental health, as well as stress from climate change and gun violence. Harvard's Rick Weisbord is the study's lead author. Young adults express quite a lot of faith in each other to combat some of the pressing problems that this country is facing. They express significantly less faith in older adults to do that. Weisbord says the report finds hope, too, that strong relationships and serving others help young adults stave off mental health challenges. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. 
State regulators are calling for new laws to protect consumers who use mobile payment platforms such as Venmo. Massachusetts is the only state that does not regulate domestic money transmissions of this kind. Division of Banks Commissioner Mary Gallagher is proposing legislation that would let regulators license, examine, and oversee the transactions. Today, she told the Financial Services Committee that Bay State residents mistakenly may believe there is regulatory oversight and consumer protection for such activity, but there isn't, she says, even at the federal level. Last year, residents used mobile payment platforms in some $31 billion worth of transactions. Attorney General Andrea Campbell is suing Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. The lawsuits being filed in Suffolk Superior Court. Similar suits are being filed in eight other states, along with a federal lawsuit by a coalition of more than 30 states. The lawsuits claim Meta purposely designed its platforms to addict young users. Campbell said in a press conference today that those features include near-constant alerts, autoplay features, and so-called infinite scroll. The company knew exactly how these design decisions could and would hook young people to the point of addiction, and yet continued to use them, and in many cases rejected using feasible alternatives that they knew would mitigate harm to our young people. Meta tells WBUR it's disappointed the states are suing rather than working with the company to create age-appropriate standards. And President Biden has given National Science and Technology Awards to several people with Massachusetts ties today. They were honored at a White House ceremony. Eve Martyr of Brandeis, Gregory Petsko of Harvard, Super Suresh of MIT and Brown won the National Medals of Science, and James Fudamoto and Eric Swanson of MIT won National Medals of Technology and Innovation. 58 degrees now overnight tonight should be nice, about 50 degrees for a low. And then for tomorrow, sunshine early, but then clouds move in later on. Temperatures about the low 70s for Thursday, sunshine with highs in the mid 70s. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For a couple of weeks now, Israeli leaders have been saying they could start a ground offensive in Gaza at any moment. Troops and tanks line the border. There have been raids into Gaza to look for hostages or to kill militants. But the invasion is still pending, and it seems the U.S. has a lot of questions about it, maybe wants to slow it down. We're joined now by NPR's Tom Bowman, who covers the Pentagon, and Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv to talk about what could be going on behind the scenes between these two allies. Welcome to you both. Good to be here. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey there. Okay, so Tom, you kick us off. Again, we don't know when, we don't know exactly what is coming, but all indications point to Israeli forces about to roll into Gaza. When... U.S. military officials look at that. What do they see? Well, a lot of concerns. There's a concern that this could spread throughout the region should Israel invade. Uh, with the Iranian-backed mil- militants in Lebanon, Hezbollah may may fire its vast amount of missiles into Israel. This concern that Israel may not have thought through the implications of a massive ground invasion of Gaza. So you have top officials asking, what are your goals Uh, What about civilians and keeping them safe in Gaza? And also telling the Israelis that this will be tough and brutal. Worse, Mary Louise, in the fight to defeat the Islamic State in the Iraqi city of Mosul, you remember, back in 2016. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said as much on ABC Sunday. Let's listen. This may be a bit more difficult because of the underground network of tunnels that Hamas has constructed over time and the fact that they've had a long time to prepare for a fight. So 
I think you'll see a fight that's characterized by a lot of IEDs, a lot of booby traps, and just uh, really grinding activity going forward. And, of course, a bigger concern is Iran itself getting involved somehow. That's why you see the American aircraft carriers, the attack aircraft, more munitions, and American advisors heading to the region. And, by the way, Mary Louise, I'm told this is all part of a long-standing U.S. plan to defend Israel. It's been on the shelf for some time. It's not just kind of a haphazard movement of armaments and troops. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of President Biden's visit to Israel last week where he said, we understand. We understand Israel's rage. Children were among the more than 1,400 people killed. But he also said Israel should not be consumed by that rage. Learn from the mistakes the U.S. made after 9-11. What exactly? is Biden warning about here? Well, the biggest mistakes for the U.S. to telling Israel is the U.S. invaded two countries, Afghanistan and Iraq, overthrowing their governments and thinking things will be better, all fueled by fear about more terrorist attacks or suspected weapons of mass destruction. And in both cases, you had guerrilla warfare that lasted for two decades and continuing, of course, to today. Some of that could be true here. You, okay, you destroy Hamas. Who governs in Gaza? And are you creating more militants by your tactics? Daniel, jump in here from Tel Aviv. You just heard uh, Tom Bowman say U.S. officials are questioning what are, what, are, what are Israel's goals here? What are they? Yeah, I mean, Israel has uh, been a lot more clear just in the last couple of days about what its stated goals are. And the, and the goals are to eradicate Hamas's military capability and its ability to govern the Gaza Strip. So essentially, Israel is calling for regime change in Gaza. Um, Israel and its leaders keep saying the next phase of the war is coming. Uh, what is that phase is the question. Uh, now, Israel has created this condition, Mary Louise, where basically they've said... Um, Israel needs to remove Hamas at all costs, and this is a very dramatic goal, and now Israel's trying to figure out how to make that work. There are tens of thousands of Hamas militants in Gaza. What happens with them? I mean, there are a lot of questions. Tom posed some of them. Another one is, is the Palestinian Authority, the internationally recognized uh, leadership of the Palestinians, are they able to take over Gaza if Hamas is, is uh, toppled. They, the, the Palestinian Authority barely functions today. They don't want to be seen as coming in on the backs of Israeli tanks. And of course, Israel says it doesn't want to reoccupy Gaza long term. They don't want to be responsible for the lives of two million Palestinians there. And, and meanwhile, on the hostages, how are people there in Israel thinking about uh, the hostages that Hamas is holding as Israel is bombarding Gaza? And, and it sounds like planning a ground attack. Oh, they're thinking about it a lot. I mean, Israel has released, I mean, Hamas has released four hostages just in the last few days, and this really does change Israel's calculus. It does delay a ground invasion. Today, Israel dropped leaflets in Gaza using warplanes, basically calling on Gazans to to call this number if you know of a hostage. So this really does, um, really focuses the, the next days of the war. And it's also important to note there are 10 missing Americans. Some of them been, have been kidnapped by Hamas. And beyond that, you have some 400 to 600 Americans trapped in Gaza. They can't get out, and there isn't enough food and water going in. And also, I should just say that Egypt actually is concerned about letting people out of Gaza. They don't want to see millions of Palestinians coming into their country. 
Uh, Tom, quickly, just practical military considerations for the U.S. if this thing does end up getting bigger? Well, of course, uh, protecting U.S. troops against Iranian-backed militias is key. And we've already seen some attacks repelled against U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. So that's why the added missile defense systems are being sent to the region. Uh, Again, Hezbollah getting involved would be even more troubling, really, for Israel. Hezbollah, get this, has some 150,000 rockets and missiles that could overwhelm Israeli defenses. Uh, Daniel, last word to you. Do you get a sense that Israel is listening to the Biden administration's advice? I do. Israel is listening to the U.S., but, you know, Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is known to take his time on on big military decisions. And Israel has been saying this is its final war with Gaza because Hamas will be gone after this war. But, you know, the question is, how? How do you get rid of Hamas? And Piers Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv and Tom Bowman in the studio with me. He covers the Pentagon. Thanks, you too. You're welcome. Thank you. Are you dreaming of a four-day work week for five days pay? Well, one small manufacturing company outside of Cleveland has turned this idea into a reality. NPR's Andrea Shu visited to see how they are making it work. In a spacious, airy workshop, Bill Kowalsik is trimming down a small piece of wood to just the right size and shape. He works in the finishing department at Advanced RV, a company that makes custom RVs. These aren't your run-of-the-mill motorhomes. These are Mercedes cargo vans, transformed into tiny luxury homes, with every detail chosen by the customer. Kowalsik's role is putting in the wall panels, the lighting, the final touches. We don't want to see any screws. We don't want to see any wires. Just want it to be all smooth, fluid, and as beautiful as possible. Last year, when he first got word that his company was trying out a four-day work week, he had a lot of questions. I mean, all of us were a little nervous, like, are we going to be able to get our work done? Are we going to do okay? Is this going to hurt us? But, uh, gosh, it's been great. Advanced RV is one of more than 200 companies that have taken part in a global four-day workweek trial and one of only a handful of manufacturers. For six months, the businesses agree to reduce working hours while maintaining the same pay. The goal is not to do less with less, but to maintain 100% productivity by bringing more energy and efficiency to the workplace while lessening fatigue and burnout. I had read about the four-day week probably two years ago. Mike Noondorfer is the CEO of Advanced RV. He founded the company in 2012 after leading other businesses for decades. This has never been a 24-7 kind of shop. Noondorfer has always kept his 50 or so employees to 40 hours a week, which means it takes them a really long time to get their product to their customers, two full years. We could probably make more money and figure it out if we did overtime, but we never do. In fact, in April of last year, he decided to try the opposite moving everyone to 32 hours a week without any cut in pay. Think about it. What more impact could a person have on a number of people that work for them than giving them 50 holiday days a year, a three-day weekend every weekend? It just seemed like the most significant thing I could do as a business owner and manager. The funny thing is, when he first brought it up, there were a lot of skeptics, including Trisha Eller, who's in charge of customer relations and has been with the company for almost a decade. I raised my hand and I said, I don't think we should do this. This is not going to work. We need to all be here five days a week. This is how businesses run. In the beginning, she was assigned Mondays off, but I worked my Mondays from home. You know, I took a little time to myself, but not much. And then as time went on, 
I thought, what am I doing? She had to learn to delegate, to trust that others on her team could handle customer queries. Now, she says, she'll still check email on her days off. I just can't let go. But she also gets to spend more time with her mom, who's retired. Over in the shop, Bill Kowalsik says the three guys on his team got hyper-focused on what they could cut out without cutting corners. We started looking into making more templates, more little jigs and boxes to help us with things that are repetitive. They also got more mindful about who can do what task the best and fastest. Well, Zach's a little better at this, so he's going to do that. I'm a little better at this, I'm going to do that, you know. He says each little change might only save six or seven minutes, but... If you save six or seven minutes on six or seven things, you're really starting to push the envelope a little bit and, and get a little bit more done. Even still, his boss, Mike Noondorfer, says when the company went to a four-day week, they did see a dip in output. You lose productivity, and when you lose productivity, you lose some volume and you lose profit. And a year and a half into this experiment, he says they're still not as productive as they were when everyone worked five days a week. But they're 90-some percent of the way there. And I think that at some point, some of the improvements will actually take us beyond what we were able to do in 40 hours. His employees, safe to say, are converts. I ask a group of them gathered for lunch if they can imagine going back to working 40 hours a week. Not in your life. No. no. <laughs> and neither can others. Of 41 North American companies that tried the four-day work week last year, no one said they're giving it up. Andrea Shu, NPR News, Willoughby, Ohio. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up this evening on Marketplace, more workplace news. For some women with children, work flexibility is essential to supporting a family and a career. Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And Music Worcester, presenting Grammy-winning mandolinist, composer, and singer Chris Thiele with the Knights Orchestra at Mechanics Hall, October 27th, musicworcester.org. Stocks were upward bound today. The Dow rose more than six-tenths of a percent. The S&P gained nearly three-quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq picked up nearly a full percent. Procter & Gamble is moving its Gillette manufacturing facility out of South Boston after more than a century. The company will move its blade-making operation to a 150-acre campus that already owns in Andover. About 750 corporate, engineering, and research and development jobs will remain in Southie. And Mass General Brigham is distributing more than a half million dollars to organizations that support newly arrived migrants to the state. The money will go to seven community-based groups in cities including Boston, Lowell, and Lynn. It will help pay for housing, health care, school enrollment, and English classes. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. astreetframes.com. 
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. In the forecast overnight tonight, clear skies down around 50 degrees. Tomorrow, temperatures should reach the low 70s. Clouds should increase as the day continues. Still dry, though. And for Thursday, lovely sunshine with high temperatures in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. It's 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com and UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu slash together. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. One half of the World Series matchup was decided last night. Grounded a second. Two years removed from losing 100. The Rangers have won the pennant. That was Fox with the call in Game 7. The reigning champion Houston Astros were defeated by the Texas Rangers, and the Rangers are now headed to the World Series. The eyes of baseball fans will all be on Philadelphia tonight for Game 7 between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Arizona Diamondbacks. We're joined now by Chelsea Janes, a national baseball reporter for the Washington Post. Chelsea, welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right. For folks who missed last night's game in Texas, can you just give us a quick recap of what happened and the American League series? You know, the Rangers and the Houston Astros played a really exciting series that ended last night with the Rangers winning a less exciting game um, by quite a lot to secure their trip to the World Series. That's a big deal because the Rangers in particular were not very good, even just two, maybe even one year ago. So for them to have made this journey in one year and leap to the World Series is a, a very big deal. I want to talk about the Rangers for a second, though, because I was watching them in the postseason and they've looked incredible. They're very good. They're a very good team that spent a lot of money the last two off seasons to really build back up a team that wasn't very good. And it's always this debate in baseball, does, does spending money actually work? And how how is that as a building mechanism? Well, for the Texas Rangers, it was very effective. They added a lot of pitchers, including veteran Max Scherzer, who cost them a lot to get at this year's trade deadline. So they've got a lot of players on that team that haven't been there all along but have come together very quickly and, you know, made the most of the talent they've put there. So as we were mentioning, tonight is the final game of the National League Championship Series, and either the Phillies or the Diamondbacks will be facing the Rangers in the World Series. And I don't know, it seems to me like Bryce Harper is really leading the charge to get the Phillies back to the series. What do you think? Absolutely. Bryce Harper has really found a home in Philadelphia and become just a masterful playoff performer. He's been really good for them. And, you know, I expect him to be here in game seven. The Phillies have a lot of players, you know, with that kind of talent uh, that, that Bryce Harper has. They are loaded and they are playing a team in the Diamondbacks that I think have a lot fewer familiar names, a lot fewer stars, but have somehow kind of just kept hanging on to get to this point. No matter who wins tonight, it will be the first World Series in seven years without the Los Angeles Dodgers or the Houston Astros making an appearance. So as we gear up for the first game of the World Series on Friday, 
What are you hoping to see in the series? What are you watching for? You know, I think it's a, a fascinating series in many ways. One of them is is Texas manager Bruce Bochy. He stepped away from the game for a long time after having a ton of success with the San Francisco Giants, came back and seemingly has not missed a beat. He's led the Rangers straight to the World Series. He's a really steady presence, someone that a lot of people on that team look up to. And the Rangers have a lot of star power. They've got a lot of talented players on whom they've spent a lot of money, and they're banking on those players to make the difference. And the Phillies are very similar. For them, if they get rolling, it's a tough challenge for anyone. So, you know, I think it's going to be a slugfest, a ton of star power, a lot of money spent, just a really good World Series matchup if the Phillies get there, and kind of a, a really wild card one if it's the Diamondbacks, because they're just a team that no one expected to be there and just a very unfamiliar group to most people who follow baseball casually. Chelsea Janes of The Washington Post, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. California has more people who are homeless than any other state. To help tackle the issue, a program in Los Angeles acts like a real estate agency for the unhoused. NPR's Jennifer Ludden explains. I'm in the car with Dan Valdez, who's going to check out a new apartment in his portfolio. I'm really excited. Uh, this was just hard work from our housing team. Valdez is with the nonprofit Brilliant Corners, which partners with L.A. County's Department of Health Services. Their mission is to have a stock of ready apartments so as soon as clients get their vouchers and documents in order, they can move right in. Oftentimes, our housing team will go out and, and do that shoe leather engagement. That means to find these places, Valdez's team of 12 makes cold calls, knocks on doors, and scouts for properties. Then they reach out to convince landlords, big and small, to sign on. It's full-time work, and if they didn't do it, it'd be left to overburden homelessness case managers. Valdez parks at a modest white apartment building near downtown. He targets areas clients want to live and the sizes they need, and clients can choose from up to three units. Inside, it's cozy, a main room with a kitchen, small bedroom, and bath. Uh, very nice remodeled unit, as you can tell. And it smells like new, right? <laughs> and here's the thing that really gives Brilliant Corners an edge. The program can start paying the rent immediately, even if this place sits empty for up to two months. That's huge for the landlord, Esther Kim, who's stopped by outside. Oh, hi, nice to meet you. Kim owns three small buildings and says half her tenants use federal rental vouchers. But working with Valdez's team was so much easier because she didn't have to wait on all that red tape. The process takes forever. And then um, sometimes if I have a, like a better tenant that's willing to come in right away, I'll be like, I'm sorry, I'll just take that tenant. California actually bans voucher discrimination, but it's hard to enforce and a major problem. In fact, many people lose their voucher because they can't find any landlord to take it, especially in this tight market. Brilliant Corners also works with local vouchers that are more flexible, and every month it manages to place nearly 200 people into permanent housing. The group's chief operating officer, Chris Contreras, says when a landlord has an open unit, they can act fast. One of our housing acquisition specialists could go visit you at that unit today, inspect it, talk to you about pricing, and we would be able to take that unit off the market today. In fact, he says the program's become so popular over the past decade, some landlords offer up units even before listing them. Another selling point, a higher-than-average success rate at keeping tenants housed. Hi. Hello. 
Tamika Swain has been in this sunny apartment in Inglewood for three years. She used to work at a nail salon, but it wasn't enough to pay rent. She and her teenage son shuffled between living in a car and motels, and then Swain was convicted of theft. I panicked at the moment because I was like, I can't feed my son. I'm homeless. I don't know what's going to happen. I was scared. After a two-year sentence, a county program connected her to Brilliant Corners, which found this place. Like all their clients, she also gets lots of support. A case manager, mental health counseling for her depression, plus a housing coordinator. Lorena Magallanes stops in to see Swain and other clients every few months in person to catch any problems that might put their housing at risk. Maybe they're off their meds. Sometimes it could be something as simple as appliances. Tamika's stove went out the other day, and so we got her really awesome stuff. She was really excited about it because she likes to cook. Tamika Swain says it all helps her feel settled. It feels like a second family, somebody that I could call when I'm in need to even talk or be around. L.A.'s housing model is spreading in California and beyond. And even as homeless numbers here keep rising, Swain is one success story. She's in her last year of film school and has launched her own podcast called Cocktails and Stilettos. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com, authentic, artful, accomplished.